Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 55. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this on January 13th, 2022 in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. The best way to support what we are doing here is to tell your friends, either the old-fashioned way or on your social propaganda website of choice, or write a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, but mostly just tell your friends. That means the most, by a long shot. This is Jamestown and the Powhatans, part two. We're not insistent on prerequisites around here, but you will enjoy or at least understand this episode quite a bit more if you listen to Jamestown and the Powhatans, part one, first. It contains important background of the key players, including Paramount Chief Powhatan, his kinsman, Opakankanaw, John Smith, and sundry other English. That episode also has a bit on my philosophical approach to the Jamestown saga, which bears a little repeating. My American listeners, who are probably 95% of the total, almost all know that the narrative of the Jamestown-Powhatan story has become something of a political struggle in the United States. Jamestown has long been weaponized in the service of political narrative. But until perhaps 50 years ago, the weaponization was largely in one direction. At some point when I was still playing with Hot Wheels on a daily basis, historians began looking at Jamestown from the perspective of non-English actors, including especially the local Indians and more recently the Africans who arrived in 1619 in some condition of involuntary servitude. The reconsideration of Jamestown as something less than a heroic moment in the history of Anglo-America began at some point in the 1970s, although I am sure people more expert than I can point to even earlier evidence of the shift. In only the last two years, the 1619 Project of the New York Times, which is a very powerful amplifier, has jacked up the political fight over the Jamestown narrative to 11 very special because if you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board, oh. 11, oh, 11, and most 11. And amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? For our part, we're going to tell the story as straight as we can, even if perfect objectivity is, as it always has been, unattainable. William Strachey, an Englishman who would arrive in Jamestown in 1610 in one of the subsequent waves of settlers, recorded a prophecy told by the local Powhatan priests. The prophecy, which had been told to Paramount Chief Powhatan at some point before the Jamestown settlers arrived in 1607, warned that from the Chesapeake Bay a nation should arise, which would dissolve and give end to the Powhatan Empire. Powhatan responded to the prophecy by wiping out the Chesapeake tribe, which lived near the mouth of the Great Bay. Departing from the usual practice of absorbing women and children, the prophecy so rattled Powhatan that he ordered the killing of every last Chesapeake. The name of these long-destroyed people survives today in popular memory only because the English named the region after them. 
And then, after all of Powhatan's wars of consolidation, the English arrived. Carl Breidenbaugh, in his 1980 book, Jamestown, 1544 to 1699, imagines that first contact on the coast of Virginia in May 1607, quote, There it comes. From a perch high in a tree on the river's bank, an alert Indian lookout shouted down to his companions crouching in a clump of bushes. Excitedly, these watchers talked among themselves in an Algonquian dialect as they sought to determine who and what it was they had discovered moving up the Powhatan River, soon to be called the James, on May 4, 1607. Wawinchapunk, the king of the Pespahegs, having been warned of the arrival of three great ships in Chesapeake Bay, had stationed small parties at distances within easy communication of each other along the north shore of the river, all the way upstream, from Kekoton at its mouth to the king's principal village lying beyond its confluence with the Chickahominy. What the lookouts had spotted was a small open vessel known as a shallop, aboard which, as it drew nearer, they could make out several clothed and bearded, fair-skinned men. The craft sailed upriver past an island called Pespaheg. It would shortly be renamed Jamestown. Eight days later, the Indians spied the shallop coming downstream with the tide. The following day, three large ships ascended the river as far as the island and then moored inshore with lines made fast to trees on the bank. The next morning, more than a hundred white men went ashore. After unloading quantities of supplies and other goods, most of them set about making a fortification, while others seemed to watch and ward as it was convenient. Why have they come? What were they looking for? Are they going to stay? These and many other questions must have been discussed by the startled Pespahegs. And while they might have been suspicious and fearful that these strange men were planning to settle in their midst, although neither the white men nor the red realized it at the time, this invasion of North America signaled the inception of a profound and lasting human tragedy. The word tragedy in ordinary speech means an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. And surely, that is what the Jamestown years would bring for all the peoples involved. It also has a dramatic meaning, a genre focusing on stories of human suffering, typically consisting of a human flaw or weakness in one of the work's central characters, which then triggers a devastating event or series of events for those in that character's orbit. Both meanings describe the Jamestown story without any requirement from the safety of the 21st century, that we assign culpability or draw a moral lesson. We do not know how many Indians in the region died in the early years of the Jamestown-Powhatan saga. They would certainly number in the many thousands as the years went by. But good records of English mortality survive. They died at almost unbelievable rates. At the end of the first year, ending in the spring of 1608, 38 of the original 108 settlers were alive. During that same time, the Popham colony on the coast of Maine would lose as few as two English settlers. The winter of 1609, known as the Starving Time, 
reduced the population, which had been increased again by new waves of settlers, from 500 to 60 in about six months. Even 10 years later, when one would think that the Virginia Company project would have learned a few things, the death rate was still extraordinary. From 1619 to 1622, the Virginia Company sent 3,570 people to the James River, and 3,000 would die. From 1607 to 1625, along 18 years, only 1,200 of the roughly 6,000 English, other Europeans, and Africans who reached Virginia would survive for an overall mortality rate of 80%. That is a lot of human suffering and tragedy in both its colloquial and dramatic meaning. Seems like a fair term to describe it. Of course, on that May day in 1607, nobody among the English or the Indians imagined the colony would unfold as it did. Let's get back to those imagined but very plausible Pespahead questions. Why did the English come, and what were they looking for? Here's how Carl Breidenbaugh described it in 1980, quote, Contrary to what we may have read in history books, the Virginia Company was not, in 1606, proposing to plant a new nation. The officer's objective, while a novel and large-scale experiment, was much more modest and prosaic. They intended to explore the scene and build a fort as a preliminary to a larger settlement. Most of the first colonists sent out would be expected to fish and grow crops to feed themselves and to trade with the Indians. Others were to survey carefully the Chesapeake Bay and tributary rivers, with an eye to discovering a passage to Cathay, and to trace out and map the still-unknown seacoast from the Savannah River to the Bay of Fundy. In the course of these activities, one subsidiary objective was to find the survivors of the lost colony of Roanoke, about whose existence many rumors still circulated. Another, much discussed, and sincerely so, was the proper treatment and eventual Englishing and Christianizing of the Indians of Virginia. When Lord Ellesmere was asked in 1609 why there had been such a bustle about sending people to Virginia, he was said to have replied, At first we always thought of sending people little by little. But now we see what we should do is establish ourselves all at once, on a large scale, to warn off the Spaniards and the natives. Back to me. Other immediate goals included commercial viability. The Virginia Company was a for-profit enterprise, and finding a means to that profit loomed large. Rumors of precious metals in the region persisted. Notwithstanding the failure of the Soto, Pardo, and Roanoke expeditions to find proof. And of course, unspoken by Virginia Company luminaries, but well documented in the broader English writings in support of colonization, what to do with the vast numbers of poor people in England, enticing them to leave and perhaps live more productive lives in the New World contributed to upper-class support for the venture. The three, quote, large ships, as the Indians perceived them that May of 1609, were actually quite small. The largest of the three, the Susan Constant, was at 120 tons, only 116 feet long. Her captain was Christopher Newport, 
the most experienced man at sea in the group. Before James I had ended the war against Spain, Newport had been one of England's most successful privateers, not counting Francis Drake, of course. It's getting harder and harder to find a legitimate basis for dropping Drake's name, by the way. And the Virginia Company was effectively relying on him to get everybody across. Bartholomew Gosnold, whom we have already seen up north, commanded the 40-ton, 68-foot Godspeed. If you followed us along the coast of Maine a few episodes back, you'll remember that Gosnold was wiser in his dealings with the Indians than most of the English who came later. This also was important to the Virginia Company, which had sensibly directed the expedition to do everything it could to maintain peaceable relations with the locals. The Discovery, roughly 20 tons and 50 feet long, was captained by John Ratcliffe, whom David Price describes as a comparatively shadowy figure who apparently had left few tracks in the sands of human events before going to Virginia. Ratcliffe was a gentleman, as a matter of social rank at least. Curiously, Ratcliffe was a pseudonym, or at least a newly adopted name. Ratcliffe had been born John Sycamore. Also curiously, Ratliff would loom large in the hideous Disney version of Jamestown, elevated to governor, I suppose because his chosen name, Ratcliffe, makes him sound like a bad guy. Of the three captains, only Newport would survive Virginia. These three rather small ships were stuffed with between 105 and 108 colonists. I can't figure out exactly why the sources vary on this. And 39 mariners. They were incredibly cramped, even by the standards of the day. Columbus had sailed with only two-thirds the men in larger ships 115 years before. The Godspeed, for example, held 52 men in 1607. Price relates that in 1985, a replica of the Godspeed reenacted the voyage to Jamestown with only 14 on board, and they found even that very crowded. Of course, most of those 20th century Americans had grown up with their own bedroom and ensuite bath, so there's that. The men, there were no women on this first voyage, were of three sorts. There were the sailors who were under Newport's command and slated to head home once the colony was set up. There were gentlemen of the upper crusty sort who would mostly have to be pressed into doing actual work, and tradesmen and artisans who were presumably skilled at doing things. John Smith, in many ways, stood alone. He was a soldier and adventurer, much looked down upon by the toffs but literate and as skilled with a pen as with a sword. Smith, whose actual accomplishments had already been impressive, would bring with him an attitude that might easily be confused for American, open disrespect for those gentlemen who did not otherwise earn his respect through deeds or sound judgment. The Tofts, including especially Edward Maria Wingfield, a leading investor in the Virginia Company who would be the colony's first president, did not appreciate that Smith didn't know his place. In addition to men, the ships carried food and other supplies meant to last for months, and the Susan Constant was 
armed with cannon lest there be pirates. Each ship also contained a sealed box to be opened at landfall with orders from the Virginia Company, including the names of the local governing council. The three ships left London on December 20th, 1606, but would not reach Virginia until late April, almost four months later. The voyage started out poorly. Starting January 5th, storms and contrary winds pinned the small fleet in the English Channel, anchored within sight of England. This was immensely frustrating to all, no doubt, but especially to the men on board accustomed to living a life of comfort on land. Wingfield and other gentlemen tired of rocking at sea just off the coast of home and wanted to throw in the towel. Smith argued forcefully to the contrary with the support of the expedition's religious leader, the Reverend Robert Hunt. Unlike many of the gentlemen investors who were there for a return, as it were, Smith, still a young man in his 20s, looked forward to the adventure, and Hunt hoped to save heathen souls. This would not be the last squabble between Wingfield and Smith. The winds changed before Wingfield prevailed, and the three ships followed Newport's route, the traditional ones south to the Canaries, then west pushed along by the trades to the Caribbean, then north to Virginia, rather than the northerly route via the Azores pioneered by Gosnold. History does not record whether Gosnold rolled his eyes when Newport delivered his orders. Smith and Wingfield on the flagship with Newport continued to squabble. It's not clear why precisely, but the most likely explanation is the simple one, that Wingfield had decided that he did not like Smith one bit, and Smith, for his part, did not know his place. Wingfield absurdly accused Smith of planning to murder the council, which was not yet officially or actually known since the orders were sealed, usurp the government, and make himself king of Virginia. He and the other gentleman, you can't see my scare quotes, prevailed on Captain Newport to confine Smith in a makeshift lockup. When the fleet got to the Caribbean in late March, somebody, probably Wingfield, ordered gallows be built. But Smith somehow rallied support, probably through the good offices of Reverend Hunt, and in the end was spared. The fleet left the Caribbean behind on April 9th and worked its way north. By the 20th, still out of sight of the North American mainland, the gentlemen this time led by Radcliffe started agitating again for the ships to head back to England. It had been four months since they had sailed out the Thames, and apart from a few days of peace and relaxation in the islands, the men had not had any respite since December. These instances of upper-class fecklessness were not in and of themselves important, insofar as the expedition carried on in each case, but they were an early warning for the social division that would almost doom Jamestown in its early years. In this case, just as the gentlemen leaders, Smith still being in the clink, were seriously discussing heading back to England, a storm blew up, forcing the mariners to take in the sails and the settlers to retreat below decks. The storm did no recorded damage to the ships, but it seemed to remind everybody that sailing home might be even more problematic than pushing ahead. And indeed, in the pre-dawn morning on April 26, the three ships spotted land at roughly latitude 37 degrees, the site of today's Virginia Beach. 
After four months, Newport had nailed the landing at the very mouth of the Chesapeake. That very day, Newport picked 30 men, weighted, of course, to the socially exalted rather than the experienced, according to David Price, and went ashore. They spent the day hiking around the area, but found nothing worth remarking upon but fair meadows and goodly tall trees, in the words of one of the gentlemen. They saw no Indians. Indians, however, saw them. Now let's turn to Price's account. That night, as the party headed back to the ship, a detachment of five native warriors followed them unnoticed toward the shore. With arrows clenched in their mouths, the native men crept down the sand dunes on their hands and feet, expertly keeping themselves invisible in the darkness. When the natives closed in and began their charge, they probably did not seem to the English like terribly formidable attackers. Granted, they were physically more massive than the English, both taller and stockier. The flashes of war paint on their cheeks and foreheads might have been disconcerting at first. But the English knew that they alone had guns, the natives' arrows with their heads crafted from sharpened bone or a splinter of stone were rudimentary in comparison. What the English did not yet realize is that those arrows in the hands of an experienced native archer were deadly accurate at 40 yards. The native men could shoot down birds in flight. Not only were the arrows more accurate than English muskets, they could be fired more rapidly. During the short encounter on Cape Henry, Gabriel Archer gentleman, like Gosnold, a Cambridge graduate, was shot through both hands. Matthew Morton, a sailor, was shot in two places of the body very dangerous, as Percy later put it. Newport fired at the attackers, who withdrew after expending the last of their arrows. Relations with the Indians were not off to a good start. They had attacked the English without any provocation other than, well, their presence. Of course, careful listeners know that the Indians of the area were acquainted not only with the Spanish, who last built an encampment in the Chesapeake region 37 years before, but also the English, only 22 years before Ralph Lane's Roanoke colony of 1585 only 70 miles to the south of Virginia Beach, had sailed north and explored the lower Chesapeake for most of the winter of 1585 and 86. The upshot of those experiences was that the locals attacked the English on sight, even before they had heard about all the condos and hotels that would one day go up along the pristine beach there. The Virginia Company had instructed the expedition to open the sealed orders within 24 hours of landfall, and so the time had arrived to open them, as Newport and his men, somewhat worse for wear, arrived back at the Susan Constant. The orders would include the list of the seven men who would serve as the local governing council in Virginia, reporting to the company's board back in England. Those seven men were, by and large, unsurprising. They included Edward Maria Wingfield, Captain Newport, Captain Gosnold, Captain Ratcliffe, George Kendall, who was a protege of Sir Robert Cecil, the Secretary of State, 
and John Martin, who is the son of the Master of the Royal Mint and Lord Mayor of London. The last man on the list, however, was not like the others. John Smith. When he read that bit, Wingfield no doubt breathed a naughty word. Smith was still in confinement, allegedly for plotting insurrection, but in fact, for speaking to the Toffs as if he were their social equal. And orders from the Virginia Company would not be sufficient to get him sprung. Smith did not, therefore, cast a vote when the council elected Wingfield as its president. In addition to the appointment of the local council, the company had left detailed instructions and useful advice. The settlers were advised to take their time in choosing a site. It should not be too heavily wooded because they did not have enough labor to clear a thickly forested area. The company further urged the colonists to take, quote, great care not to offend the naturals, as they referred to the Indians, and they should immediately begin trading for food to hedge against the possibility that their own crops would not yield much in the first year. If they hired natives as guides, they should remain alert in case the guides left them stranded or led them astray. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that both happened to the Spanish more than once, including to the Jesuits not long ago and not far away. Along the same lines, the settlers were admonished not to let Indians see novices shoot firearms in their presence. For if they see your learners miss what they aim at, they will think the weapons not so terrible, and thereby will be bound to assault you. The company did not believe that Indians would pose a significant threat, but they instructed the settlers to be very careful about the Spanish and not to be surprised by them as, quote, the French were in Florida. To stay out of the sight of the Spanish, the colonists were to look for a site well upriver from the coast and post an outpost at the mouth of the river to keep an eye out. Finally, they were not to allow Indians to inhabit between you and the seacoast, lest they become guides for foreign invaders. This was not actually stupid advice. While it would turn out that the Spanish never attacked Jamestown, they knew about it from espionage in London and seriously debated taking it out. They never moved against it, however, because Philip III was a cautious king, and also because they thought it would fail without them lifting a finger. Powhatan, it would turn out, would make exactly the same mistake, with far worse consequences. Once the colonists had chosen a site for their settlement and unloaded, they were to turn their attention to building shareholder value. Newport was to take 40 men and explore upriver for a route to the Pacific and look for precious metals or other useful minerals for extraction. Finally, the instructions closed with two scarier admonishments that no man would be permitted to return to England without the permission of the president and the council and that no man would be allowed to write any letter of anything that might discourage others. The trip to Virginia was, it turned out, all but one way as a matter of governing law, and for most of the early settlers, the next stop would be a grave, if they were even that lucky. The colonists assembled a modular shallop and spent the first two weeks of May exploring up the Powhatan River, named by them the James. They met some of the 
Kekaton tribe who greeted them peacefully and celebrated the encounter with feasting and dancing and whatnot. It was some relief to learn that not all of the local indigenous peoples would react to the English with immediate and unqualified hostility, as that attack on the first day might have forewarned. They also scouted locations for a settlement, debating between a site they called Archer's Hope, named after Gabriel Archer, the colonist who had spotted it. He was the guy who got shot through the hands that first night. And Jamestown, on a then unoccupied peninsula that the Indians called Pespeheg. The advantage of Arthur's Hope was an obvious prevalence of game, rich soil, and a long, unobstructed view downriver the direction in which Spanish attack would come. Wingfield, however, preferred Pespeheg for two reasons. It had deep water right up to the bank, so the three ocean-going ships could anchor against the shore. And it was connected to the bank of the James by a very narrow neck, which would in theory allow for effective defense against both Indians and Spanish marching overland, as it happened at Fort Caroline. Newport agreed with Wingfield for those reasons, and because he thought Pespeheg Jamestown would be at further remove from Indians and therefore give them less offense. John Smith, whom nobody consulted, subsequently reported that he agreed with Wingfield, proving that Smith could keep his mind open when the stakes were high. The first few days at Jamestown were optimistic. John Smith was released because every available hand was needed to build up the settlement, and even some of the gentlemen pitched in by chopping down trees to clear an area for dwellings, cutting the fallen trees into clabbards to be shipped back to England for sale, and planting gardens. Apparently, friendly Indians came to visit. Messengers from the Pesbeheg people arrived and announced that their chief, well, Winshipuck would soon come a-calling, and that he would bring deer for feasting. President Wingfield, eager to follow the company's instruction not to offend the Indians, decided that the best approach was unilateral disarmament. He ordered that there be no building of fortifications, another small variance with Brydenbaugh's account, nor practice in the use of firearms. The guns were to remain in the crates in which they were shipped. Considering that they had been randomly attacked at Virginia Beach only three weeks before, this was an almost unbearably naive decision. Smith must have been beside himself. Unilateral disarmament has occasionally found its proponents even during my lifetime. It is not a new form of naivete, as the example of Wingfield proves. Proponents of unilateral disarmament of necessity believe that their adversary is well-intentioned and only pushed into aggression by their own aggressive posture. Even if that is true, and it only occasionally is, there's another problem with unilateral disarmament. It makes the people on the disarm side nervous, and nervous people do provocative things, even unintentionally. That is what happened at Jamestown. On May 18th, only four days after the English had landed, Wawinchapunk arrived with a promised deer for feasting, and with a hundred men armed with bows and arrows. A few of the nervous English had firearms at the ready. Wawinchapunk motioned for them to put down their weapons, which they refused to do. 
Then a Pespahegh warrior picked up an English hatchet and a scuffle ensued over it, while Winchipunk took his men and stormed off in anger. Two days later, the Pespaheg returned without their chief, this time with 40 men and another deer, requesting to spend the night at Jamestown. From their perspective, this was a reasonable request on its face, insofar as Jamestown was on land they considered theirs. Not surprisingly, the undefended English thought this was a terrible idea. After an exchange between the two sides that amounted to petty one-upsmanship, the Pespaheg again left in a huff. After this second rocky encounter with the Pespahegs, Newport decided to take the exploratory trip called for in the Virginia Company's instructions. He was supposed to travel upriver with Gosnold and 40 other men, the idea being that Gosnold would take 20 to explore promising land, especially highlands that might contain minerals, and Newport would go as far upriver as possible. The Virginia Company's orders, however, presupposed 120 colonists, when in fact there were only 105 to 108. So Newport left Gosnell behind and picked a smaller group of 23 men. Newport, being practical, selected only five colonists for the mission, filling out the contingent with mariners from the three ships. The veteran privateer had no use for the better sorts on a journey such as this, so he did bring the disgraced John Smith. Newport's mission would last only a few days, and we will cover it in the next episode. While Ian Smith and the others were gone, an alliance of five tribes... All right, this is going to be a pronunciational challenge. The Quiocahannocks, the Wayanocks, the Appomattox, the Pespahegs, and the Kiskiaks attacked the settlement with at least 200 warriors, taking it entirely by surprise. In James Horn's account, the Indians came right up to the camp and shot their arrows through the tents, wounding 12 of the English, two of whom later died. The English pulled the guns from the crates and rallied to defend themselves, with Wingfield, to his credit, out in front. An arrow passed through his beard harmlessly, which no doubt helped him reach his subsequent decision to build a proper palisade and repeal his policy of unilateral disarmament. The attack would have overwhelmed the colony if the Susan Constant and her cannon had already gone home, as she would do in a few weeks. In the event, the small ship managed to bring its cannon to bear and started booming away. A lucky shot brought down a big branch of one of the primordial trees at the edge of the settlement, and that panicked the Indians into a retreat. The colonists had a very close call and could easily have been wiped out. In retrospect, the English concluded, no doubt correctly, that the Indians had been planning their attack for at least a week before launching it, which meant that the visits of the Pespahegs and their chief had served as reconnaissance, either in addition to or in lieu of actual diplomacy. This is a good place to stop this week and keeping with my ambition to keep the episodes a bit shorter than last year. My plan for the coming weeks, subject as always to the usual qualification that I follow my muse, is to stick with Jamestown through John Smith's time there. 
and then swing back to Samuel de Champlain's exploration of the Maine coast, the St. Lawrence River, and the European discovery of Lake Champlain and its eastern shore, which is now Vermont. Contrary to the popular imagination, Champlain would encounter neither Bernie Sanders nor excellent ice cream. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Their emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow on Twitter, which you can easily find, I think, by searching The History of the Americans podcast, or by going straight to my absurdly complex Twitter handle, at the history of TH2. Until next time.